Well, good morning, saints. Good morning. And uh, good morning to those of you who are tuning in online. This morning we have, uh, we're going to begin just a very short mini-series. We'll certainly not be contained in one Sunday. We spent about six or seven months in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' inaugural teaching, his first sermon, if you will. In that teaching... Jesus makes a jarring statement, which I have referred to many times, and it is worthy of our attention. It is worth us taking the time to understand the depth and the beauty of what this one statement contains. You might recall that Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. It was as if he took a baseball bat, and I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, and he lined up the religious leaders who were there to monitor him, and he took them out with that one statement. Because what Jesus was saying when he said that I will fulfill the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, your Bible to the Pharisees. What he was saying was this, I will not only use it as my straight edge, I will not only teach from the law and the prophets, but I will show you the heart of God beneath the statements that you have taken and immortalized for people. I will do for you that which you could never do yourself. I'll live it. I won't just make a show of it like you. I will live the law of God. I will show you by my life the very heart of God. And never, not on one occasion, will I ever transgress the law. I will never step one foot to the left or to the right. It's never been done before. And of course, it never will be. Ultimately, Jesus would not only obey the law, but on our behalf would submit himself to it throughout his life. And he would become a curse on the tree. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore our sin He became our sin. Surely, as we follow the movement of the gospel accounts, the crucifixion, the suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the center of God's plan. So we're asking this question. It is worthy of our attention. Why did Jesus die? Now you might sit there and say, well, that's pretty obvious. He died for my sins. I want us to see that Calvary is the very center of God's story. It is the very center of 
of the Bible narrative, the death of Christ and all that is intrinsically tied to that is the key. In fact, you might know there are a number of different theories that have been proposed to explain the death of Christ. Many of them completely undervalue the death of Christ, diminish its importance, or even sidestep it completely. So this morning and over the course of a number of weeks, I'd like to highlight the death of Christ and demonstrate its importance through a number of propositions that we will address. Here's four of them. Number one, the death of Christ, Calvary. The death of Christ is not a disposable add-on to the Jesus story. It's really the punchline. You see, many people will present and explain Jesus in such a way that elevates some of his teachings, which is good, but they reduce it to moralism because they sidestep the cross. The teachings of Jesus make no sense apart from the sacrifice at Calvary. Number two, the death of Christ is woven into the very fabric of Scripture from the very beginning. It is intrinsic to the Jesus story. You cannot understand Jesus if you do not understand his death. It is why before he was born, it was announced, he'll die. It's an odd way to make a baby announcement, I'm just saying To talk about his death before he's even born. Third. It is not something, the death of Christ, is not something that we can ignore or pick and choose is relevance to our lives. It has personal consequence for every single person. Fourth. Probably my favorite. The Christian will never tire to hear of it. Will never tire to speak of it. Will never tire to sing about it. Will never tire to lay our head on the pillow at night and think about Christ giving himself for me. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It is in the death and the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus that I see the love of God so clearly. Literally. We could talk about it every day and it just gets better and better. It gets sweeter. And I don't mean learning something new about it, which is also great. But just the old, old story. The old rugged cross. It's beautiful. So these are some of the 
concepts that I want to draw out of Scripture over the next number of weeks. So this morning we're going to focus on the this idea that it is intrinsic to the fabric of Scripture. That is, it's not something that was made up over a campfire by the disciples when they were trying to figure out what to do with the fact that their Messiah was just killed. Not at all. The death of Christ is completely expected. Again, reference the angelic declarations or the proclamations, the announcements of Jesus' birth. We cherish the fact that from the very beginning, they say that he was born to die. We'll develop that as we go. But let's begin. I'm going to tie together a few concepts that over the last few years we've talked about. But I want to bring them all together so we can see this and launch in a good way from the Sermon on the Mount. We begin with a key Bible motif. Garden. You might know that my family is British. My folks are British. You probably know that the English, they love their gardens. It's a very lush environment, rains a lot. For many people, by my own observation growing up, people's gardens, lots of color and, and vegetation and so forth. It's a beautiful thing that lots of English people really prize and appreciate. Would you know that in the first three chapters of the Bible that you hold in your hand, in the, fir- in the beginning few chapters, no less than 12 times, God refers to a place called Eden. And he tells you, It's a garden. In fact, as you travel through Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, you will see it referred to as the garden of God. The Lord's garden. Can you imagine? Now, I'm not a gardener. I'll just be honest. Weeding is about my all-time least favorite thing to do. Once you get through it, Just wait a few days. You're back at it. Why bother? But follow me for more gardening tips. Now, can you imagine for a moment a garden that God plans and God plants with no curse, no weeds? Can you imagine? What that garden was like. Which is why throughout the Old Testament you hear this phrase, the garden of the Lord or the Lord's garden or the garden of God. It was beautiful. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I mean... It looked good and it tasted, it was good to eat. The tree of life was in the middle or the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember how scripture opens up. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, 
God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No explanation. Quite frankly, don't care if you don't believe. There's a declaration that's made. When things began, God. God was and God created. God said, let there be light. And there was light. The context of when God begins to speak about people, Adam and Eve, it's right there in the garden. But we also know, within that beauty, within that garden, within that perfection, was our adversary. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Friends, every generation, it is the same entirely expected playbook. The same set of questions. Did Did God really say that? Did he mean that? I mean, isn't there another way to understand and to view that which is clearly right in front of you? I know God just said that, but did he really mean it? Like, do you need to take it literally? He deceived Eve. And through Adam's sin, there were immeasurable consequences you might know that the way the bible is constructed the first and the last two chapters of your bible are sinless perfection it's life as it was before sin and then revelation 21 and 22 life and existence in a completely redeemed new heavens and new earth that's The story of the Bible. Now going back to the garden. Genesis 3. Paul put it this way. Romans chapter 5. Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. So there's something that that takes place here. With the introduction of Adam and Eve's disobedience, their sin. Sin becomes woven into the human experience and death by sin. It's why you have a Bible in your hands. My pastor used to call it the unfolding drama of redemption. Back to Genesis 3. There was one who was coming who would suffer. But Satan himself would be vanquished. He would receive a death blow. Verse 15, the very first reference to Christmas. I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, was this clear? 
Not at all. Think of it like this. You know, sometimes, like if you're in the mountains, maybe there's a, there, the, when the sun begins to rise, there's a fog, there's a mist. I mean, it's very beautiful, but as the sun rises, as the sun becomes more intense and more visible, that fog begins to dissipate. So here at the very, 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 very beginning, you have a reference to one who would come. It wasn't clear. In fact, there's good reason to believe that Eve thought that Cain was exactly that person. But all you need to know is that there's one coming who would suffer. His heel would be bruised. But it would be Satan who would receive the death blow. And from Genesis 3, all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, this theme... The death of Christ is expounded upon, prophesied, and explained. The garden. Remember the garden. Here's another concept in scripture. The word wilderness. What do you think of when you think wilderness? Wilderness is spoken of 266 times in your Old Testament. It is often spoken of as exactly what it is, the wilderness. But oftentimes, the word wilderness, the concept, is given in such a way that there's a loneliness to it. There's an emptiness, a barrenness. It's a negative connotation bringing about the characteristics of being a lonely place a forsaken place not really a place where you want to be because none of your friends are there right there's nothing there that lush vegetation in the garden of eden you're not going to find it in the wilderness listen to what the evangelical prophet isaiah says to God's people. This is chapter 64. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion itself has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. God is now speaking to his people And he says, your cities, all that you've worked so hard for, well, they become a a wilderness, a place of desolation. There's a negative sense to it. In other places, the writers would specifically say that these detestable sacrifices that would be made to foreign gods would be made in the wilderness. But remember, the Bible is more than just a compilation of the failures of people, specifically God's people, the Jews, right? We we see that again and again, where they forsook God, where they wandered from him, where they did not honor and love their neighbor, where they would ignore the poor. They would do things that were grievous to God's heart. Isaiah also tells us, chapter 43, verse 19. 
Remember Isaiah is the prophet that spoke the most about Christ. And in the most detail. He says, I am doing a new thing. Are you ready? I'm going to make a way in the wilderness. I'm going to take that which is negative, that which is associated often with sin and failure and separation from God. And in that place, I am going to make a way because I am God and I can do those things. I call into existence that which does not exist. And that which has no life, I call to life. Remember, remember that concept. But let's go back to this idea of a garden. Do you guys remember Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11? Probably almost every American household has a magnet or a painting or a picture or something. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. We take that out of context. That declaration, verses 11 through 13 of Jeremiah chapter 29, has a very specific context and a very specific application. And the application is, now that God's people, through their own sin, had been judged and had spent two generations in Babylon in exile, God is now going to bring those exiles back to Jerusalem. And that's where he shares his heart. He says, "My, I know what I have for you. That is to prosper and to bless you. But don't forget verse 12 and 13. You will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Right? There's a relationship that has to take place there. But did you know the part that is not in everyone's bathroom on the mirror is verse 5. He says, when I, build, when I bring you back to the land, when I restore your fortunes, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Sustain yourself. Support yourself. Surround yourself with beauty. There's often this juxtaposition of wilderness and desolation and sin and failure and separation from God and garden. Beauty. Sustenance. Flourishing. Remember the wilderness and the garden. Now let's cross the bridge, 400 years of silence from God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. And where does the story of Jesus start? Where, when we start talking about Jesus, what are the themes that the New Testament authors, the gospel writers, will immediately pick up? It actually does not begin with Jesus. It begins with his cousin, who leapt in his mother's womb at the mention of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, the first few verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. Where, did, where was he preaching? Where did he come from? Where did he come from? The wilderness. You see, God is going to reverse the very trajectory of what we had done. 
In the Old Testament, it was garden to wilderness. And now it's going to be completely reversed. And God, Isaiah 43, is going to do a new thing. And he is going to create and give life and restoration beginning in the wilderness. And God said it. There will be a voice crying in the wilderness. At our very deepest point of despair and separation from God and sin and that which is often referred to in a negative sense in scripture, the wilderness. Now let's read this again. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When God said he is doing a new thing. Remember, Pastor Mike talked about the kingdom last week. He's here. And this message would originate in the wilderness. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. I promise you, every word of God is tested. The word of God is so rich. There's always something for us to learn and to see. What is the message of the one crying in the place of despair and desolation and being forgotten and failure and separation from God? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. God is doing something. He's here. So Jesus... You might recall at the beginning of his ministry, he was baptized. He identified himself. He came completely under the law. And the father said, listen to him. And the spirit descended upon him. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. The first thing that Jesus does. The very first thing that Jesus does. Upon his baptism, what is it? He was led by the Spirit to go where? To the wilderness. Why? To be tested. To go right to that place of testing what we would often, or the Jewish readers, would associate with despair and loneliness and failure. Jesus would spend 40 days there on your behalf. He would not eat. And he would be tempted relentlessly by the adversary. The very same one who said, did God really say that? Jesus, I mean, Satan, excuse me, time And time again would come to the son of man and he would take God's word and he would twist it almost beyond recognition and he would tempt Jesus. And what would Jesus do in 40 days in the wilderness? He would be tested and he would be without fault. He would prove himself indeed to be sinless. Yes, born without sin, unlike us. But he would be born without sin, but then he would be tested. You know, when when you buy a car, maybe a used car, they'll sometimes say, you know, kick the tires, kind of see what's there. We had an opportunity to see Jesus tested 
in the wilderness and Jesus emerged sinless, which would obviously continue throughout his entire life. Mark, when he talks about Jesus being led into the spirit, it's a very strong word. It means to be forcibly driven, like the spirit compelled Jesus to go to that dark place. So that, dear saints, he could fulfill that which was written about him. So that he could be tested and without fault and do for us that which we could never do for ourselves. Our salvation is rooted in the wilderness. The proclamation and our Savior, it goes right to that place. And so the movement is now in the New Testament is reversed from the garden to the wilderness to failure to separation from God to the exact opposite. And John is going to make sure that you do not miss this movement in Scripture. After Jesus... Sweats drops of blood for us in the garden of Gethsemane. We're going to go back in future weeks to Jesus sweating blood. It is so important. Where was Jesus betrayed? Everywhere, everywhere, yes. Thank you, George. Uh, But John chapter 18. Take your Bibles and turn there, please. John chapter 18, verse 1. When we begin, we've now heard about the suffering Messiah for centuries. And now the gospel writers are going to move us to this climax, to this place where it's all going to come together and it's actually going to happen. John gives tremendous detail and he does not want you to miss certain specifics. Verse 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden. And that's where he was betrayed. That's where the son of God was betrayed. That's where it all began, where this crucifixion began. When one who had followed him for years And watched every miracle, heard every teaching, and yet it came on stony ground. But saints, don't despair. This is where you and I should rejoice. When darkness came in to the garden, this time darkness would be defeated. John chapter 19, saints. Where was our Lord crucified? Where was ground zero of all these messianic prophecies, of all these hundreds of times that the prophets said, one is coming, and Isaiah said, he will suffer. Chapter 19, verse 41 of John. Now in the place where he was crucified... There was a garden. Do you see how these Bible authors weave together these details? They're not just randomly telling you these things. I mean, that's nice if you like gardens. And oh, that's nice. There's a garden there. 
John is telling you a story. Because we, Adam, the first Adam, if you will, lost paradise in the garden. Jesus, the second Adam, will regain paradise in a garden. But we're not finished with the crucifixion of Jesus. Because that's not where the story ends, is it? John chapter 20, verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So now they're trying to figure out what to do next. Because the one they had been following is now dead. And now she's speaking to Jesus and doesn't know it. But what does she say? Supposing him to be the gardener. It's not insignificant, particularly in that culture, that the first witness and proclaimer of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a woman. And she thought he was the gardener. How about that? Because they're in a garden. Sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me. I'll I'll take care of him. But you see, what is happening here these echoes from Genesis where paradise was lost, Jesus, our champion restores and brings it back and redeems. And he does so in a garden. These are not just stories made up around a campfire. Let's go back to some other familiar territory. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the book of beginnings. Do you remember what happened? Genesis 3 and 4. After they sinned. They felt, they felt ashamed. They were aware that they were naked. What does God do? Well, he clothes them. He clothes them with an animal skin. Now, if you're going to do that, something has to happen in order for him to do that. Blood was shed. Take your Bibles and turn or scroll to Leviticus chapter 17. This is a key gospel principle that we have to keep in mind. Third book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17. And this is the theme that we will pick up in the next sermon. Genesis chapter 17. I want you to see it in your own Bible or just hear me say it. For the life, this is God speaking, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is in the blood that makes atonement by the life. That is a concept that really wasn't known, medically speaking, back then. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Saints, the reality is when we read our Old Testament, in fact, our whole Bible, 
Virtually every page is stained with blood. Atonement. All these words, we're going to unpack these words. Atonement, propitiation, oblation. They all have meaning. But they all take place through the shedding of blood. Over and over and over again. So Genesis, we see when the Bible talks about Adam, Adam and Eve. There's blood that is shed for one couple, really one man. They're clothed with the skin of an animal. Move on to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. You have the Exodus, the Passover. Remember that? The Jews had been in slavery for about 400 years or so. Their time of redemption had come. And so the people were told, get a lamb, spotless, without defect, a young male lamb. Slit his throat, kill it. And you take that blood and with a hyssop, you are to apply it to the doorway of your home. Only one doorway in every home. So that when you leave, when you are free, when I effect your redemption, you will be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Leviticus, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The entire nation would be gathered once a year. There were two goats. The priest would lay his hands on a goat and also on the other goat, symbolizing the transferring of their sins to the goat. One would die. Blood would be shed. You see, the priest, the high priest, after cleansing himself all morning, would stand before holy God and make this sacrifice. But there was another goat. That goat, he had a better day. He would be led out in the presence of all the people. Do you know where he was taken to? The wilderness. As a symbol that our sins have been removed and taken from us. But here's the catch. The blood of bulls and goats could never, ever take away sins. They could never cleanse the conscience of the people. Which is why they never stopped. Every day. Every year. Somebody. Somebody out there was thinking this through saying, you know, this is not the most effective system because we keep doing it. But please notice how scripture develops itself. Book of beginnings, Genesis. One sacrifice, one couple. Second book of the Bible, the Passover. One sacrifice for a household. Third book of the Bible, Leviticus. One sacrifice, one nation. And that would be the holding pattern all throughout the Old Testament. Until that day. Until that day. 
when John the Baptist would give the most riveting behold statement ever to fall upon human ears. There he was baptizing. John chapter 1 verse 29. It's an Awana verse for good reason. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the story of the death of Christ. And oh, the significance and the meaning and the power of the blood of Christ that flowed for us. Would you join me for a word of prayer? With every eye closed and head bowed. This really is holy ground that we are embarking upon. When we talk about the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is the heart of the gospel. It is the heart of the story, the narrative of the Bible. It is the most profound truth that Christ Jesus died for sinners. It was no surprise. It was entirely anticipated for those who were attentive to these details. The question we will ask each and every Sunday, and we do this every Sunday, is have you responded To the Lord Jesus Christ. You see if you sit and listen to this. And it's a it's a nice story for you. That has value but very little. As we saw a few weeks ago. Paul says that God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul said in Acts chapter 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on him. Don't just consider him a savior. He needs to be your savior. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the power of the blood. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the hope that you have given us. Four years ago today, Nathaniel stood in the other building and he prayed. He prayed for his sister, for his grandparents, as Richard and Tracy were baptized together. Oh Lord, these memories are difficult. 
And yet we know that Tracy is freer than she has ever been. Closer to you than she has ever been. Never again to be subject to physical frailty, to temptation, to heartache. We thank you for that hope. We pray for Richard, for Nathaniel, for Shayla, who are without the one who advocated for them endlessly, unceasingly. We pray that the hope of the gospel would take root in their lives, that you'd make a way. That in their heartache, they will be comforted. Through the love of so many who have given themselves to help and to comfort them. Lord, may you be very real and very close. This is the hope of the gospel. We do not pretend that life is perfect now. We know it's not. But thank you. That in the wilderness, in our darkest day, in our separation from you, in our anguish, in our heartache, in our own failures, in the hurt that we carry because of others in our lives. You make a way. And it's in that that we choose to rejoice this morning. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.